God is telling a story. We know it is history. And we all have parts to play in that story. There's a script, and the question is, will we play off of the same script that God has declared? He's calling, and He's communicating, and He's inviting us to be involved. He calls us to be rescued and then be engaged in His restoration story, His restoration project. We are tracking this over four weeks with the life of a prophet. His name is Jonah. He's an unlikely candidate because though he's a prophet, we don't learn much from his words, but we learn a lot about his life, from his life. It's not so much what Jonah does, but what he doesn't do. And out of that, he becomes somewhat of a satirical character for us, somewhat of a Gilligan from Gilligan's Island, who's both spoof and hero in the whole process. Now, some of you may not have been here last week, so I wanted to summarize chapter 1, and Pastor David did it perfectly in a slide last week, so I want the slide thrown up there. This is the Jonah story, all wrapped up in one. Now, I love this. Jonah gets a call to go to Nineveh by God. That's due right, east, overland to Nineveh, and he does what any good prophet does, he goes in the opposite direction. He goes due west towards Tarshish. Tarshish has beaches and wonderful places. We're all going to Tarshish at some point in our life. But I love the way David put this map together is there was a bit of a turn somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea. You see some squiggly marks. That is Jonah in the belly of a great fish. And eventually, Jonah ends up back on land. Well, today we're going to look at the story of Jonah's rescue as he goes in the wrong direction and how God puts him back on course. And there's a real subtle message in this. The prophet in trouble cries out to the Lord. And it's really not complicated to figure out the message for ourselves. God is wooing and prodding and coming into our lives so that we'll cry out to him and to remain on course with him. So let's go to Jonah's prayer so that we can see some of the elements with that. You can throw that map down now, because I want people listening to me not watching the map anymore. <laughs> Jonah chapter 2, you may want to have your Bibles out. We'll highlight a few points. You've heard the context. Um, let's just get it out of the way right now. There's a whale in the room, or as we say, an elephant in the room. Some of you want me to deal with it. So the Scripture says there was a great fish, and the fish appointed by God. Uh, the word in Hebrew is dach, which is the general word for fish, so we don't know if it was a whale. Uh, just assuming if it was a whale, it would probably be a sperm whale, because those are the ones that are in the eastern Mediterranean. To give you perspective, I asked Gary Palmer to do some research on whales for me recently, and he gave me a whole book of data. A sperm whale would lay its nose here, and its tail would go out into the parking lot about 25 feet. Uh, I could duck in to get into the chambers of the heart of a sperm whale. Could easily fit into the stomach of a whale. Um, I could give you all kinds of explanations and accounts of why this could be plausible. But I'm just going to say this right now. Miracles are not plausible. They're not rational. They're not irrational. They're transrational. And there's nothing you can explain in this. In fact, the whole issue of the big fish is only important to show that a prophet called by God does not obey, 
but winds, a storm, and waves, and a big fish, and eventually a plant, and then a worm, and along the way, some cattle that go fasting at the command of a king, listen to God, but a prophet doesn't. This is really the backstory of all this. And we don't want to get lost in the whole idea of the great fish. Uh, I write this on page 25 of my book. Uh, you can learn more about Jonah by getting this book. <laughs> my publisher is celebrating right now. <laughs> but this is what Scott McKnight says about the big fish. Missing the difference between God and the Bible is a bit like the person who reads Jonah and spends hours and hours to figure out if a human can live inside of a whale and what kind of whale it was, but never encounters God. The book is about Jonah's God, not Jonah's whale. So whether you think it's an allegory that tells a story or it actually happened, it really doesn't matter. The bottom line is, are you going to meet God in this story? Is He going to be the one who comes alive in all the things that you experience. So verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. It's the most basic word for prayer in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's to intercede. You know that there's multiple types of prayer. We often use the acronym ACTS, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Supplication is another word for intercession. It's simply asking God for things. It's the most basic element of prayer. Uh, sometimes we're embarrassed. I've had people say to me, I'm not sure that God and all of his workings in the universe is too concerned about my reality. There is nothing too small to bring to God. Pastor Nathan captured that in the children's sermon today. God delights in the same way as we as parents love when our kids come and ask things, even ask for ridiculous things. We're glad that they're at least in relationship with us that they're asking for those things. So God delights when we bring prayer requests to him. Abraham prays for Abimelech when he's sick, a problem that Abraham caused. That's the word prayer. Moses prays for Aaron because Aaron is experiencing problem because of his own sin. Hannah prays when she's barren. She weeps before God. Samuel's farewell address, he learned this from his mother. He says this, the people say, please pray for us now that you are dying, Samuel. And Samuel says this, moreover, as for me, far be it to me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. It would be sin before the Lord to cease praying for those around us. Nehemiah hears news of the walls being down, he fasts, he weeps, he prays, and he calls the people to do the same in Nehemiah 4. Now, prayer is not an excuse to avoid action, because at the same time that Nehemiah tells the people to pray, he gives them a tool in their hand to build the wall and a sword in the other hand to protect from what's coming along. So prayer is cooperating with God while he uses the abilities that he put in us. And the simple prayer is to the Lord, his God. If you feel comfortable writing in your Bible, circle the word his here. Yeah, the important words are Lord and God. Lord is Yahweh, Jehovah, the personal name for God. God is Elohim, the one who's the creator. It captures the full essence of who God is. But what's important in this moment is that it's still Jonah's God. Rebellion does not make you no longer his. In fact, rebellion proves how much you are his and how much you need him in your life. 
He does not stop being God your father. Relationship is far more powerful than your rebellion. As far as the sailors are concerned, Jonah is dead. And we might think theologically that Jonah is dead to God at this moment. But it's in rebellion that God comes in in those times and he grabs us because he's the God of love. Jonah is still calling out to his God even though he's moved in the opposite direction. Then this beautiful prayer. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. What they do in Scripture a lot of times is they think back on an event and they put good theological language around a prayer to express the feelings that were there. I doubt in the slimy middle of the belly of this fish that he was praying so eloquently. (laughs) I will give you a clue to what his prayer was. Help! (laughs) You've all prayed SOS prayers. And this is what Jonah is praying right now. But looking back, he puts it in the context of the story. Remember, the Lord said, arise and go. And in Jonah's disobedience, he goes down, down, down. Well, the prayer starts in the down. Listen to it. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Shoal, I cried. Out of the belly of death, you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep. Down. Into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look up unto your holy temple. There's an inkling that there might be something up there. I am driven away from your sight. I shall look to your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Jonah is as down as far as he can get right now. Now, this is where I love the Bible. In the midst of this prayer, Jonah says, and there's seaweed wrapped around my head. (laughs) Oh, this is great. If you don't read this regularly, you're missing stuff. This is better than TV. Humor so predictable on TV. This is just incredible. Who in the middle of a prayer acknowledges the seaweed around their head? But at this moment, there's an inkling up. You brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple, up on Zion, to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, Jonah is completely powerless. And it's when we become powerless and have no longer the ability to count on ourselves that we get to that point where we actually hear God's has said, his steadfast love calling to us. And we declare salvation belongs to the Lord. And in this moment, Jonah goes from being at the worst place you could possibly be to looking up to his God. And God saves him. And then we get the response of the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to the fish. I love it. He's letting Jonah hang for a while. 
You know, Jonah's going to start making vows. Lord, if you save me, I'll go to Africa or I'll go to Nineveh, all those kinds of things that we say. And we're going to learn about his revows in the next chapter. But God talks to the fish. Why? Because the fish with no will will glorify the Creator. That's the backstory of what's happening here. And it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. Folks, the miracle is vomit. Oh, there's so much to say about that. <laughs> One commentator says this, I love it. The fish was so sickened by Jonah's hypocritical piety, he vomits him out. <laughs> and Jonah is rescued, and we're going to see next week that God gives him a second chance. So what's my so what this morning? The first one is this. There's no rebellion so great that it overcomes God's love and purpose for you. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where you were at last week. I don't know where you were 30 years ago. I don't know what's happened to you. I don't know what storms you've created, what storms have been created for you. I don't know what Tarshish you're living in now or Tarshish you're trying to get to. I want you to know that you cannot outrun the love of God. Your rebellion is not so great that he is so disappointed that you would come back. In fact, he's delighted with every one of us rebellious people that comes back into relationship. I think God's favorite moment at Stanwich Church every week is at this table because he sees us drinking in the forgiveness because he's watched our rebellion all week long. I think God just sits in heaven and goes, Look, my sons and my daughters back in my presence. It's God, your God, no matter how far you've gone. Number two, it's impossible to escape the presence of God, so quit running. It's interesting in this story, the greatest danger to Jonah is not great seas and great cities and great fish. The greatest uh, danger to Jonah is himself. Usually when we're filling our lives with all kinds of things that are a distraction or a new experience, we're trying to run from the brokenness that's right here. I watch people do this all the time. The sad thing is when you get to your new destination, you're still with you. <laughs> but here's the good news. So is God. You can't outrun His presence. So let him overtake you. Romans 8 says it this way. Powerful words. Just listen to them. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation, you fill in the blank, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number three, the Lord does not usually protect us from the consequences of our own choices and our own actions. Now, I said usually. Sometimes he does, but sometimes he just allows them to go and 
if I may be so bold as to say he's appointed them because he knows in those moments we'll cry out to him. He loves us that much. So you say, what? He's going to make me go through garbage in my life because of my actions? Yeah, he loves you that much. He really does. The prophet Micah says this, all our sins are cast into the depths of the sea. When I read that this week, I thought, interesting, Jonah had to be cast into the depths of the sea to get rid of his sins as well. God loves you so much, which leads me to my fourth one. He may immobilize you to save you. It's when I'm powerless and I can do nothing to get myself out of my circumstances that I'm reminded again that I need a Savior. It changes my view of suffering. All of a sudden, trouble becomes the womb of His blessing in my life. Something gets birthed in the midst of that trouble. Because God's not really ultimately concerned about my happiness He's concerned about my character, and he's building me to be an overcomer, like it says in Romans. He will allow these things because he loves me that much. This week in our Wednesday prayer, we're following a lectionary that gives us different psalms. We were in Psalm 119 uh, over at Stanford. We pray at 6 o'clock on Stanford. We've been doing it for about three years, and we're seeing God break into that community, which is fun. We came to verse 67 of Psalm 119. So we're in a circle of about 10 people praying, and this is what it says. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. When we, we read that from the Scripture, David and I looked at each other because we both knew we were preaching this way. We could hear the Jonah story. Then a few verses later, it said, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now we're really looking at each other. But there's this word in between those two verses that's powerful. You are good and do good. It's out of the very character of the goodness of God that He allows these things into us because He's shaping us. He wants us to be like Jesus. And Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of His present risenness and the fellowship of sharing in His suffering. Changes everything about my view of trouble in my life. There's about 87 more so what's, but I think the hamburgers are ready. <laughs> so what's my now what to you this morning? It's simply this, die. Die. Die to your plans and aspirations and the things that you have for yourself then live in the resurrection, salvation, life-giving, empowering power of the Lord. And watch what He does through you in His restoration project.